invite you to turn with me to that text that was just read for our hearing this morning. I, our family has taken vacations uh, over the last eight years, typically during the summer and for an extended period of time, maybe two to three weeks at a time. Uh, this summer is odd, actually, because actually most of my board is taking vacations, uh, and we are not. So it's kind of an inverse uh, opportunity. Glad that they, some of the men can have those times with their family. Um, if you don't see some of our board here, that's why they're on vacation, and some of the family attached uh, to them as well. Um, but uh, trust that when they return, we'll be ready to serve the Lord together as we look forward to the fall and all that God is intending for us to do in ministry. And uh, we're going to turn in our text to 1 Corinthians 15. And as I open in prayer or open this portion of our service in prayer, I want to pray particularly for Bill Snyder. Uh, Bill is a good brother, a man who loves the Lord, who is ministering at Faith Baptist Church in Tresslerville, and uh, just asking for God's mercy upon his ministry this morning in the Word. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that we can serve the Lord through the Word. What a privileged opportunity that is for, for myself and for Bill, who is going to be opening the Word in his congregation this morning. I ask, Father, that you would cause your word to be clearly understood, that the Holy Spirit would open blind eyes, deaf ears would, would suddenly be able to hear the truth of who you are. And I pray, Father, that as I teach this morning, that you would fill me with strength, wisdom, and to be able to communicate to your, your glory. Lord, we are deeply humbled by the fact that you would look upon us and see us as fit to fellowship with you in Christ. That you would send your Son into this world to die and then to be resurrected for our salvation. Lord, we thank you for that. And so, may we be humbled by it. May we be filled with awe, with, with comfort, with joy. And may your Spirit shine through us in this dark world. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, I don't know how you are when you go to an airport. Um, airports can be places of great anxiety for some of us, but they can also be um, fun for those of us who enjoy looking at strange people. Um, airports are filled with strange people, and probably some are looking at me when I'm in the airport thinking, that guy's pretty strange too. But uh, I enjoy doing some people watching and, and that sort of thing, just seeing people run to and fro. But uh, on my flight home from Louisville uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, I had a vacant seat beside me, which at the moment I rejoiced for. And then I realized that there was somebody behind me that was very loud and talking. There was two guys sitting together, and, and they were conversing. And the older guy was kind of steering the conversation with the younger guy, and uh, so I listened in, and yes, I was eavesdropping. You couldn't help it. It was kind of loud, but uh, I learned as I was listening that uh, the younger guy was a computer software engineer, and he was doing a lot of travel for his company, and he was returning home to Charlotte is where I was connecting, 
And the older guy had a flight to go on to, to Massachusetts after that, and I also learned that he was a pastor. And as I listened in, I said, huh, I wonder what he's going to do with this conversation. And as the conversation was going, he turned it towards interests in this young man and different music things that he had that he listened to, and, and one of those was the, the music group Skillet. And I don't know if you are familiar with Skillet, but uh, as the conversation went along, he asked for the opportunity to share his faith with this young man. And so as I listened in, I began to pray. And I was shocked, not really shocked, but pleasantly surprised to hear that the pastor uh, communicated about Jesus Christ, who was a sinless man, who had died for the sins of the world, and then was resurrected three three days later, and then was seen by a multitude of people. And as I was listening, I was reflecting, you know, he's, he's, he's actually doing 1 Corinthians 15, just exactly what Paul had done. And as I was listening, the young guy actually became like the woman at the well and started to redirect the conversation. Because the reality of the resurrected Christ who was seen by a multitude of people was something that he couldn't argue with. And he started to divert the conversation. He clearly saw the significance that if Jesus was truly resurrected from the dead, then he is the only Lord and Savior for whom he must give an account. And so he redirected the conversation. But the old guy, older guy, older guy, I'm getting older too, uh, started to... um, Look for, he was patient. He looked for another avenue. And then within the last 20 minutes, he had his opportunity. And I'm going to save that part for a little bit later in the message. But I was, as I said, thrilled by how he presented Christ and the reality of the resurrection. Now, in this message that I want us to look at here, it's, it's really important for us to realize that many people have given their lives for the reality of the resurrection. And in this text, look at verse 12. Notice significantly what Paul points out in this congregation that was confused about this central doctrine. Verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? How could that be? That seems awfully strange, doesn't it? That on the one hand, they could say that Christ was risen from the dead, but yet their bodies would not be risen from the dead. How could that be? And in their day, the Greek and Roman culture actually was kind of pervading their thinking. They um, had the old way of thinking that the body was something that was to be escaped from, that the body was um, kind of a weight that kind of held you down. But what Paul is saying here is, how is it possible that you could think this way? Because if Christ, who was a person, was resurrected from the dead, then clearly people can potentially be risen from the dead as well. And reality is, is that the two things all sit together. Christ, if he is risen from the dead, then there is also the reality and the potential for us to be resurrected from the grave. Now, Paul is not suggesting that anyone was necessarily thinking that Jesus didn't raise from the dead. That's more of a modern problem to be 
actually truthful. He was actually concerned that people were not able to put the string of thoughts and logic together, that if Christ died, then other people necessarily must be resurrected. But I want to just take a step back for a moment and just get us to realize that there are a lot of people, though, that do question whether or not Christ has been resurrected from the grave. And a large part of that comes clearly because of a darkness of the heart and primarily because the Holy Spirit hasn't enlivened the senses to truly see that Christ is resurrected from the dead. There is an absence of context. People weren't there. If you think back to the earlier part of chapter 15, Paul talks about all the different people who had seen Jesus resurrected from the dead. He appeared, um, it says, to Cephas, that is to Peter in verse uh, 5, and then to the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 people. Now, we look back on that, and that may not strike us as significant, but if we had have lived in the first century, that would have rocked our world. Context is important. And uh, reminds me, actually, of a modern issue in which people have a hard time believing that an event occurred in the past. I don't know if you realize this, but there is a significant group of people who do not believe that the lunar landing actually happened. There are a number of people who, who reject that because they weren't there. And uh, I was listening just this week to uh, an episode on a podcast in which a a man was recounting the experience of living in the day in which the United States landed on the moon and the space race that was in existence between us and Russia at the time. And uh, as he was describing it, he said, the visuals of the dust moving on the moon, it was like liquid water moving. He said, that, that couldn't be replicated in a Hollywood studio at all, you'd have to have seven-foot titanium walls to create a vacuum that would recreate the dust moving like that. And, and, and then on top of that, the whole culture of the day was geared towards moving towards landing on the moon. Um, it, it, in fact, it frustrated him as he was, he said he almost wanted to weep that people refused to believe that we had landed on the moon. Now, as I listened to that, I realized there's a lot of people who have a hard time believing that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the grave because they lack the context of the era. Let's just face it. That's how it's going to be until Christ returns. And so as we communicate about the resurrection, we also need to be praying that the Holy Spirit creates a living context within people's minds and hearts so that they might see that Christ has truly been resurrected from the grave. And so in this text, I know this is a kind of a big setup, but it's important for us to see that Christ risen is our foundation and our future. The resurrection is central. We, we, we also think of the cross as being central, and if we're not careful, we can disassociate the resurrection as well. But the resurrection, if it had not happened, we would not have 
any awareness of Christ, of God's Father's satisfaction with the sacrifice of his son. The resurrection is central for our foundation and also for our future. Now, in this text, Paul is arguing two sides. On the one hand, if we're preaching Christ risen and he's not risen, then what we've done is we've misrepresented what God's intentions were. On the other hand, if it truly did occur, then it is the greatest proclamation that the world has ever seen. And so he's contrasting two ideas. As we read the text, we're kind of seeing a a negative argument, but there's an implied positive argument. And so I'm going to be drawing our attention to these contrasts. Now, in verse 15, look at the first idea that Paul gives us. In verse 15, he says, um, verse, uh, verse 12, excuse me. Yeah, verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we have testified about God that he has raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So he's, he's showing us that we potentially may be misrepresenting the gospel of Christ if Jesus did not raise, was not raised. Now, what Paul says there in verse 15 Misrepresentation is kind of a mild word, though. You think about that. All preachers of the gospel would actually be found not merely to be misrepresenting. We would actually be lying. We would actually be trying to sell a false story of reality. I mean, what would be the point of assembly on a Sunday. I mean, I would love to sleep in. I mean, we could actually just close up shop and just be, we could go on and do other things. If the resurrection of Christ had not actually occurred. Misrepresentation is really, we'd be liars. And as I was thinking about this concept, I had to put myself into another world And as I thought about misrepresentation, think about the past. Think about some of the events that have occurred if they weren't true, if they didn't actually come to pass. A couple weeks ago, I used an illustration about the Second World War and how that Europe was occupied. There There was a reality of bondage. Think for a moment with me if actually the Allies had not won the war? What would have life been like if America had actually surrendered the flag? What if Nazi Germany was occupying North America? What if the Japanese were occupying the other side of North America? What if the whole world history had been reversed? It would, have been, it would be a, a world of terror. It would be a world of bondage. And I want us to consider that illustration and realize this is exactly the kind of spiritual bondage that he's talking about if Christ had not risen from the dead. 
verse 17, look at what Paul says. He says we would be still bound in our sins. Verse 17, and if Christ had not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. We would still be in bondage. We would not have a heart that loves God above everything else. We would, we would be stuck craving things that do not satisfy. We would not be able to really experience happiness, real contentment, real joy. We would be in the bondage of sin. This week I was listening to a news report of the UN World Happiness Index. Now, I'm not sure exactly how that index is formulated, but they posted America as being on 19, the list of the 19th happiest places to live. That's crazy. We scored number one on wealth in the world but number 19 on the level of happiness. That's exactly the kind of world that we would be living. In fact, much of our world lives in because they do not believe that Jesus Christ arose from the dead. There are so many people who are in the bondage of, of dissatisfaction. In that same statistic, it said that between 1991 and 2011, Teen happiness satisfaction was on the rise, but suddenly dropped after 2013. And most of teens today struggle with depression, suicidal ideation, self-harm levels have increased since 2010. And on the rise, for all of these things, we've found all kinds of other things to satisfy us, such as addictions in substance abuse, gambling, diets, and social media consumption. All of these things have created substitute satisfactions that don't give us the happiness that only Christ can give us. That's the kind of world that we would be living in, and much of the world currently is living in. If Christ had not risen from the dead, there would be no other alternative. That would be where we would be. And it gets even a little bit more bleak than that. Um, verse 18, another word that he uses to describe the situation in which we would find ourselves is that we would be perishing. Verse 18. Verse 18, he says, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. The phrase fall asleep is a soft word that's not intending to imply that our souls go to sleep, but the idea that as Christians we're not really passing into ultimate death. We're, we're absent from the body, but we're present with the Lord. And so what Paul is saying here is that there would be no anticipation of a future bodily resurrection. And if there is no resurrection, then being in Christ means absolutely nothing. The body perishes. Now, the word perish there is a strong word, actually. It's a little bit softened by our English translations, but it really has the concept of being destroyed, 
of being destroyed, but continually being destroyed over and over and over again, continually being destroyed. The book of Daniel actually describes what this is. In Daniel chapter 12, uh, Jim read from Daniel, but in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, the Lord God communicates to the prophet Daniel and says that in the future, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Contempt? What is that? That's everlasting abhorrence? Rejection? What is that? Actually, we don't have to wonder too much about that because in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus interpreted Daniel's words for us. In, Dan- in Mark, excuse me, Matthew 25, 41 and 46, Jesus said this, Then he will say to those who are on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And those will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And in Revelation 20, verse 14 and 15, the prophet or the, uh, the apostle John heard these words that death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The reality is, if we're not in Christ, and his resurrection means nothing. There is nothing to save us from the eventual outcome of eternal punishment in a place called hell. It's a bleak picture. And Paul is setting us up with a lot of negativity because he wants to then show us the positive reality of being in Christ in his resurrection. And the last word that, he, that I want to kind of focus on, in verse, it comes to us in verse 19, is the word misery. If Jesus was not resurrected, we would not only be in bondage and have the future of perishing, but we'd live in a current state of misery. Verse 19 um, says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, my mind went to the King James in this text where we would be of all men most miserable. But the word miserable is a really good translation of this word pity. But they're both good words in their own right because it's almost like looking at a person that you know can't escape out of their dire situation and feeling empathy for them knowing that they cannot get out of it. It's kind of like looking at the Titanic and seeing within an hour or so, the whole ship is going to go down into the icy Atlantic Ocean, and hardly, there's hardly any lifeboats. The band starts to play, Near My God to Thee. And you look at these people, these poor wretches that are going to slip into eternity in the cold waters of the Atlantic, and your heart moves in pain because you, you realize that they're in a miserable state. They don't even know how bad they have it. That's the idea and image that Paul is giving to us here. 
that if the resurrection were not true, we would be in bondage with a future of perishing and perishing for all of eternity, and that we would be then in a state of miserableness because we're believing in something that won't do anything for us. I had a recent visit to a doctor here in town, and uh, we were discussing medication, and I asked him what kind of medication he was prescribing for me, and it kind of kind of turned a little bit funny because he said, sometimes we don't really know which medication really works well. And if it works, then we say, well, that's good. And then he said, well, actually, in the end, it really doesn't matter because if it works, it works. And I thought to myself, wow, what if it doesn't work in the end? I mean, it's just a momentary high that I'm having because I think it's working. The placebo effect, right? And the reality is, it's not enough that Christ does something for you personally. That's nothing. It has to be rooted in reality. And we have to have the kind of faith that that understands that this is rock solid. Either it's true or it's not. And we have to project that truth to the world. There's a lot of people who find solutions in their life, but in the end, they don't have the ultimate solution. We need to elevate in our thinking the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, what Paul is saying, look, if I was simply prescribing prescriptions for people, you'd call me a criminal because I didn't really believe that this was going to have an effect in the end. But the reality is, is the resurrection is our only foundation, and it is the hope for the future. This is the message of Christianity. So I, I, I've kind of painted a negative side here. Paul is clearly, you know, going the if-then route in his argumentation. So if it's not true, then this is the reality that exists. It's very negative. But on the other hand, if it is true, then it is the greatest thing that this world has ever heard. Since when has anyone rose from the dead? Never. Only Christ has done that. So Christ is our, risen Christ is our foundation and our future, and so it's a proclamation in verse 12 of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 12, he said, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say this? It is spread abroad as good news for the world. And so I I kind of separated these negative thoughts, but I also see in these negative thoughts some implied positive thoughts for us to consider. And the first is that if Christ has indeed risen from the dead, then this means that we have the abundance of true life. Now, the word risen comes up multiple times in this text. Verse 12, verse 13, verse 14, verse 15, verse 16. And what is implied in the word risen? It's life, not death. Real life. Now, we think of eternal life, we tend to think about only 
what happens when we get into the little box or urn or whatever. That's not the extent of eternal life. But eternal life actually invades this present life, what we would call life. The life of the eternal actually indwells us now if Christ has risen from the grave. I want you to hold your finger here, and I want you to turn back with me to the book of Romans for a minute, please. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, where Paul talks about how that the life of the eternal has invaded this world because of the resurrection of Christ. In Romans chapter 4, verse 17, he picks up an illustration of Abraham who, who in his impotency experienced the life of the eternal in his body and produced an heir. But that's kind of metaphor for the reality of the Spirit coming into our lives and taking up the dead bodies that were before Christ and giving us the life of the eternal. And in verse 17, we pick up in the midst of his thoughts there. He says, as it is written, I have made you father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed, that's Abraham believed, against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the word, it was counted to him as righteousness, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our, our trespasses and raised for our justification. He was raised so that we might have a good standing in God's sight. The Spirit is then infused within us, giving us the life of the eternal now. In chapter 5, he picks this up. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We're rejoicing in hope. Not only that, that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, the Holy Spirit is given to his resurrected people who have put their faith and trust in him. And that life of the eternal is poured out into us. Now, we may look at that and realize how desperately we need that kind of happiness, that joy, that anticipation of God's working within our lives. 
In short, what we're doing is we're, we need to ask God to pour out a love for him. The Spirit of God may dwell within us, but we may not be walking in the Spirit as we ought to. We have the life of eternal with us, but do we live in the fullness of that life? God is, God is the source of all blessing. He is the, the one where we receive all happiness, both future and also here in this world now. What Paul is describing in Romans chapter 4 is that the love of God being poured in us creates a fountain, a fountain of love for him, a fountain that keeps growing as life is poured within us. And we're given affection to love God, and it produces within us a character and a love for God. I don't know if you realize, but we, we become what we love. We become what we love. God has so ordered this world that, that as we focus on a love, it transforms our internals. And if the lifeblood of God is given to us as we focus on him who gave it to us, there's going to be a transformation that takes place. And the love of God is going to totally renovate our internals. God has also ordered the world that we deny ourselves and we serve other people and we actually live out that love. (laughs) Everything changes and we experience real joy real life, real happiness. I, 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 I can never, I can always, <laughs> there are many times when I want to safeguard my own personal schedule, and there are times where I need to safeguard my own personal schedule. But there are times when I have denied my own personal desires and sacrificed those in order to be with other people and found that in that self-sacrifice, I have found true life, true contentment, true joy. God has so designed this world that if we sacrifice ourselves just as Christ sacrificed himself, we can find true life in him. I mean, the resurrection of Christ produces real life in us now for his glory, but it also changes our worldview. It changes our worldview. Go back with me to chapter 15, please, of 1 Corinthians. Look at verse 14 and verse 17. In verse 14 it says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Uh, verse, that's verse 14. In verse 17, he says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. The, the implication is the positive of this. Rather than having a futile faith, there's a actually living and um, vital faith that looks at something as being real. And the word faith here actually hinges upon the word Preaching. Paul came to the Corinthians preaching a worldview that there is a resurrected Christ. And now this means that everything else has changed. 
And the spoken communication and, th- and laying that out before us and believing that it is true, what happens is there's a change of action reflected upon that worldview. I don't know if you realize it, but in America today, the media is advocating basically two different worldviews. There is a liberal one, and then there is also a conservative one. I mean, I guess you'd probably have to be blind not to see it. But in the end, I don't know if we always fully realize that both of these worldviews are attempts to show us that there are two alternative happinesses, but actually those happinesses are really the same. They're drawing us to put our confidence not in Christ, but actually in finding happiness in the consumer model that we all live with. There is a sense in which... That, that wealth creation is a worldview that the media is trying to communicate to us, put your faith in this as a source of happiness for yourself. Paul's worldview that he's advocating is neither one of these, actually. Paul is communicating that the true source of happiness is not found in consumer world in which we live, but it is actually in the resurrected Christ. And having a faith in that matters for all of eternity, but it also matters now. The gospel is a third worldview, which is, which is superior to the world in which we live. If Christ is risen from the dead, then actually Christ and the Christian worldview is the only one that's worth considering. So Paul is proclaiming true life, a true worldview, he's also proclaiming a real confidence. In verse 17, we, we talked about that, that faith being futile, but the other side of that is faith being solid. In verse 19, if we, in Christ, if we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied, pitied. The reality is on the other side of that, and the positive implication is that there is a hope that's solid that we can have confidence in. That's what the word hope implies. The Christian hope does not put us to a shame. It does not leave us hanging on a thread. I don't know if you had noticed that when we were in Romans chapter 5, but in the first few verses, Paul continually hit home the word hope a hope that does not put to shame. He talked about how, how that the resurrection of Christ created an absolute hope. Based upon the fat past, what, Christ is, what God has done through Christ, we can also have the confidence in what God will do in the future. This is how hope works. It's a backward look with an eye to the future. Now, this is our 20th anniversary year for Abby and I. And I do realize that maybe not all would have that blessing. And just because we've had 20 years of marriage doesn't mean that we couldn't possibly crash and burn in the future. I know that that's a possibility. But you know what? I have a a growing confidence that if God allows our bodies to be healthy, we might see 50 and 60 years. How do I have that confidence and hope? 
because I've seen the foundation of the first 20 years and seen God working in our marriage positively, there is the potential now and confidence that we will endure longer. And that's how it is, and that's how we ought to think about this word hope. See, the great crisis of the cross, the disciples were wringing their hands. They were, they were wondering, how in the world was this all going to take place? They had walked with their master for three years, and, and then he died on a Roman cross. It seemed like it was all empty and vain. But then three days later, Christ arose from the tomb and was alive forevermore. That produced a confidence that the future was going to be okay. And so this is how it is in our Christian life. We can have every confidence that God is faithful to keep all of his promises because he kept them for his son. And here it is. This is the the summation of Paul's argument. That Christ risen is our foundation and our future. You know, we live in a world that looks for confidence in all the wrong directions. If you're in the social media world, there's no end to the posting of positive thinking memes. I I did a survey of a few of them this week, and I, I came up with a couple that were just like empty. Life is short. Take a trip, buy the shoes, eat the cake. Here's another one. Every day is a second chance. And this, this last one is really sad. I'm not scared of commitment. I'm scared of putting my all into someone and ending up with nothing again. There's a lot of hopeless people out there that need Christ. I wanted to come back to that airplane ride here at the end and thinking about that conversation between the older guy and the younger guy. And as he, I guess in the last few minutes, he he took another stab at it. It was, we're kind of getting ready to land and everything was starting to shift in the plane. You know how that that, that feels that way and then the the landing things come out. They're, They're actually wheels. They come out. He says to the younger guy, he says, you know, Jesus is actually different from all the other religions. Because earlier in the conversation, he had said, you know, I have respect for all the other religions out there. I meet all kinds of different people, and I, and I, and I just respect them all. It was kind of that step away in diversion. And so he comes back at it later, and he says, you know, Jesus is so different from all the other religions because he wants to have a relationship with his creation. He loves you and wants you to leave the sin that has tried to keep you happy and find him. So this is the great difference. Because Jesus did rise from the grave, he alone has the ability to give you your heart's desires. He can give you himself. I thought, wow, that guy did a great job. And the younger guy said, well, thank you. Thank you for sharing this with me. You know, I actually heard this conversation a long time ago. It's kind of funny that 
you would kind of bring it up again. Maybe that's significant. But I had a friend, she called me after she became a born-again Christian. She called me and said, she said the same thing to me, that God wanted to have a relationship with me. And the older guy said, yeah, isn't it wonderful that she would, she would call to tell you that she loved you? And God himself loves you. And maybe this is the opportunity that you've been looking for. And the young guy said, thanks for, you've given me a lot to think about. Thank you for sharing that with me. And as I sat reflecting upon that, I realized that is the difference between Christianity and all other religions. We have a living hope because we have a living Savior who died, was buried, and was resurrected for us because he loves us and wants to have relationship with us. That is the hope of the resurrection. It is also the power of the resurrection that we have the Holy Spirit who lives within us to give us the love of God that we might know him and to love him and be changed by him. Let's pray.